You're listening to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast with Davina Frederick. Hello, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast, formerly known as the Solo to CEO Podcast. It's a new year and we have a new name, but our mission in 2020 is still very much the same to provide thought-provoking, powerful, and practical information to help you in creating your own wealth-generating law firm without overwork or overwhelm. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm here today with Neil Tyra, founder of the Tyra Law Firm and creator of the Law Entrepreneur Podcast. The Tyra Law Firm is located in Rockville, Maryland, and provides estate planning and guardianship services to clients throughout the state. Welcome, Neil. I'm so glad to have you here today on the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. Well, I'm already overwhelmed with excitement to to being on your show. So (laughs) there you go. There you go. We're both just verklempt. (laughs) Yeah, Um, exactly. uh, So tell me, I have so many questions for you on so much we have in common that I want to talk about because... uh, you know, I, I love talking with other lawyers about their journey and um, how they came to do what they do now. And you have some really exciting stuff going on being a fellow podcaster. I definitely want to get into all of that. But I want to start with you telling me about your just your journey to becoming a lawyer, because I I see that you have this is like me. This is not your first career. <laughs> so tell no, me actually- about that journey. Yeah, actually, law is my fourth career. So I like to tell people I haven't really figured out what I want to do when I grow up. And <laughs> I'm certainly not grown up yet. Um, I started off cooking for a living. So I cooked at some of the finest restaurants in Annapolis. Um, of course, I didn't always start off as a cook. Started off at the real you know, entry-level dishwasher job, but quickly uh, right. learned how to cook. And, and then... You know, if you if you uh, ate anywhere in Annapolis during that decade, there's a fair chance that uh, I cooked a meal for you uh, at some point. Wow. Then I spent uh, a long period of time um, in the um, technology world, building hardware and software systems for the government and for DOD. So I worked primarily for NASA and mm-hmm. uh, then ultimately uh, in DOD programs. Uh, the NASA... Uh, experience was phenomenal. I worked in the space program. You know, there were, there was a point in time where I would have done that job for free. It was so cool. Um, wow. But they paid me and and also put me through school. So it was it was just a great experience. And then I finished that part of my career helping to build um, air defense systems in foreign countries, uh, most specifically the Icelandic air defense system. But um, I decided to get out of the technology world, and all through that period of time, I'd also been a practicing martial artist. So it, it, the time was right, and I decided to open a commercial studio for the martial arts, and I ran that for a number of years, a dozen years or so, and uh, enjoyed teaching uh, very much and was re- pretty um, influential in the in the community in that respect. But I'd always kind of uh, toyed with the idea of going to law school. I always thought that uh, some aspect of the legal profession uh, spoke to me, whether, and I can't even really recall whether it was through you know, experiences on TV or reading in the newspaper or what have you, um, but I always had that interest. And I had a couple of friends of mine 
who went to law school later in life, and that opened my eyes up to the possibility that the that that opportunity had not passed me by. So I said, well, let me see if I can at least get in. I don't even know how to go about applying for law school. So let me mm-hmm. figure all that out and, and, and apply and, and see if I can get accepted somewhere nearby because I wasn't going to uproot my, my family at that point. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll deal with it at that point. And I was lucky enough to be accepted at, at the Catholic University of America's uh, Columbus School of Law. And then I had a decision to make. What was I going to do? And I ended up selling the martial arts studio and going into seminary retirement in terms of the martial arts and approaching the law school as a full-time job. And so I was by far the oldest student in my graduating law school class. And when I uh, finished law school, um, I thought I was going to be a prosecutor. I'd done uh-huh. all my internships and, and all that in the state's attorney's office. But at the last minute, I had a crisis of confidence. And I said, well, let me see if there's anything else out there that would appeal to me. And a small boutique law firm uh, at the time uh, in Washington, D.C. extended me an offer. And I took it. And they did personal injury law. So I cut my teeth originally doing personal injury law. And I was there for about uh, two or three years. Yeah. And um, my son was a, uh, my daughter's an actress, as a lot of people who listen to my podcast know. She's an actress in Hollywood. My son at the time was uh, a pretty accomplished athlete. And I knew that I wanted to be able to see his soccer games and wrestling matches without having to ask someone. So I do what I normally do. I just jumped into a new adventure and quit my uh, job with the blessings of my former employees and just decided I was going to open up a solo practice, not really knowing what that entailed. Uh, now, I had run a business before, so I had at least made a lot of mistakes and learned from my mistakes in my previous business. What I didn't recognize was that in the law uh, practice, there are a whole new set of mistakes that you can make. Right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, there's so much to unpack here, and, and it just created more questions for me, but the the uh, the the very diverse uh, careers that you have had uh, leading up to becoming an attorney. That's fascinating to me. Um, and like yeah, I they're said, they're not really I, connected, are they? <laughs> no, they're, they're completely, <laughs> they're completely different. And I relate in so many ways because uh, I owned a high performance fitness training facility with my husband at one point before I, we, before, well, it was actually after I had become an attorney. Um, we had that business for a number of years. And, uh, yeah. but, you know, I never had, no, I was in marketing before, but at no point did I ever have such an exciting career as working with NASA. So that's really, really cool um, to have been yeah. able to have had that experience. Um, yeah, I got to tell you, it, it really was something. I was able to do a lot of different things. I started off in kind of a technical clerical position and then ultimately became what was called a launch coordinator, which sounds as interesting as it or was as interesting as it sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my last jobs for NASA was I got to be the roving reporter for uh, the shuttle mission. And so I was able to go down to Johnson Space Flight Center and with a full access media badge and, um, you know, go to all the briefings and anywhere in the control center and just write up what was going on with the first three shuttle missions. And 
I mean, come on, that doesn't get better. Yeah, doesn't get more exciting than that. That's fantastic. Um, So on to you being an attorney and starting your law firm. Uh, Well, first of all, how about how old were you when you graduated from law school? Because I was in my early 40s. So I don't know that, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you were the oldest. I was in my late. I was in my late 40s, 49 and a half to be exact. Yeah. So you, I, I understand what that experience is when you're that, you know, when you're in your 40s and you're there in law school and you're looking around and you know, going, yeah, um, these could be my children here. Um, so uh, I'm sure that was a, a unique experience for you. Um, but tell me about starting your law practice and what... How, when did you start your law practice? What year was that? Um, let's see. It would have been 15 years ago. So whatever that meant, 2004, 2005. I think it was September of 2004. What was that like for you? Like you said, you had you probably had the same thoughts I did. You've had, had other businesses before. And so, hey, I can go hang my shingle and, you know, it won't be bad. <laughs> and then you well, learn, I, okay, I, this is a little bit different. Yeah. Different. I, I mean, I did all the wrong things in, in, in retrospect. Uh, it worked out okay for me. And I was, that was mm-hmm. more luck than judgment. And, mm-hmm. you know, I had a couple of drivers, a couple of thoughts that were dominant in my mind in, in, with respect to opening my practice. They weren't really the, the, the brightest thoughts in the world because for instance um i didn't stop to consider and and it wasn't as viable an opportunity as it is now but you know where was i going to practice my my craft and i just thought well attorneys need a physical office that no longer Mm -hmm. is really the case but that's was more the case then and so but i had a very clear and specific idea what I wanted in terms of office space and the driving factor there for me is, is I wanted office in a building in which my clients had to take an elevator to get to my office. Now don't ask me why I thought that way. Cause I really don't know, but in my mind, the image of somebody coming to an attorney's office involved taking an elevator. And so <laughs> I didn't want to, I didn't want uh, an office in say, a garden uh, apartment type setting or uh, a townhouse setting or private residence renovated for law offices that we have all in and around our jurisdiction. I wanted a, in my mind, a proper business office in a, in a, in a building. And I was lucky enough to find space that fit exactly that need. And, and I got the corner office with the uh, windows on either side to boot for a reasonable price. So, there was my right. first objective. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then I didn't, I didn't stop to think, how was I going to physically outfit the office? What was I going to do for furniture and desk? And, and there's lots of, lots of ways to do that now, but um, I just took the most expedient way and I went to, you know, Staples or office Depot and just bought something that looked good. Um, and, I remember the the driving thought in my mind, again, I don't know where this comes from, but I always wanted to have a dry bar in my office so that after hours I could invite people over. And you know, <laughs> that was the image in my mind that conveyed a successful attorney. Now it's, it's silly, right. 
but uh, those were the those were the things that that, that I um, did um, in terms of the physical space. And now, in terms of the the work that I was going to do, I didn't really I didn't really have any exposure to anything other than personal injury from the boutique firm that I was leaving. Mm-hmm. And as luck would have it, uh, that firm had been doing the litigation work for another firm, another firm had, that would take the case all the way up to the point of litigation and then turn it over to our firm. Well, um, the firm that I was leaving was getting to be larger and bigger, and they didn't need that work. And so they they said to the originating uh, attorney, we're not going to do your litigation work anymore. We it, we, we have our own cases but hey, Neil is going out on his own, um, and you've worked with him. You might contact him and see if he'd be interested in taking your cases. So literally, the day I opened the office, the day they turned the phones on, you know, I had to get the phone system, uh, you know, set up. But the, the day they turned the phones on, literally, the first call I got was from the referring attorney. He said, "Hey, um, your old firm's not taking my cases anymore. I've got about a dozen or so." that I need to put into litigation, are you willing to take them? And I said, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and so I, I started off, uh, you know, so my practice area was dumb luck, really, in, in, mm. in, in that respect. But I knew that uh, one of the advantages of being on my own was I didn't have to be locked into just only doing personal injury. So I looked around and I thought, well, you know, uh, I liked at that time. I liked being in the courthouse and courtroom, and I thought, well, people are always wrecking their cars and, frankly, wrecking their marriages. And so I thought there would be a, a vast uh, source of potential clients if I went into family law. And right. we had a pretty interesting kind of uh, program here in the county where if you agreed to take two pro bono cases. You got this free training in family law, which was really very good. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, gee, that's that's simple to do. And that started my family law uh, practice area. And at, at some point in time, I then was doing more family law than personal injury. You know, the vast majority of my cases were family law. Um, and then uh, that shifted as well after a few years of doing family law and, and enjoying it. My kids at that point had grown, and um, they had moved to the West Coast. And so I needed to have a little more flexibility in terms of being able to come and go. And again, mm-hmm. I looked at the fact, well, here I am a solo practitioner. I should be able to set those rules. But the thing that was tying me down was my ties to the courthouse schedule. Right. So I started looking to see what could I do that didn't involve litigation and what, what interested me. And uh, because, again, of my age, being a baby boomer, all my peers, all my friends and family, they were all struggling with, um, you know, aging parents. And so I thought that, okay, well, elder law sounds like it would be something really interesting to take a look at. And so I started off doing some elder law cases, but I found very quickly that elder law devolved into two different categories. You had crisis cases, 
mom slipped and fell and broke her hip and she's in a nursing home. We need to qualify her for Medicaid within 30 days before they right. ship her out to a rehab center or pre-planning cases, people who knew that they wanted to get their ducks in a row in terms of providing for uh, long-term health care should they need it. And the former was the crisis type cases required a significant amount of staff because you had to be able to drop everything to help these people because it was, by definition, a crisis. And I didn't have staff. I was a true solo. And so that was causing me more anxiety than I really wanted. And I found that I really enjoyed the pre-planning aspect much more, a lot less headaches. And that's really estate planning. Um, And so that's what I did. So now I've transitioned almost exclusively to estate planning, and I'm very happy in that space. That's wonderful. Uh, Have you, do you have, are you still a true solo or do you have staff or other, you know, paralegals or virtual paralegals or anybody helping you? I am a true solo. However, comma, I have outsourced almost everything I can possibly outsource. So I have virtual receptionists. I have virtual paralegals. I have um, virtual assistants that help, uh, you know, in the ad hoc type administrative tasks. Um, and I'm really exploring the the concept of using virtual lawyers uh, as, as adjuncts to my practice. So um, I say I'm a true solo in the sense that I'm the only one, you know, with access to the, to the checking account, so to speak. Uh-huh. But there are a lot of people that I work with who work with me, for me, for pay, but they're just, they're not employees. Yeah, they're not in your office. They're not employees. Um, Are are you still in the same office or have you kind of scaled that down? No, I left that. No, I left that a while ago as well, because I, I realized now, uh, or that that point that the need for physical space wasn't as, um, as important anymore as it was when I was doing, you know, family law and, and, and personal injury. So uh, I I left that space, and uh, I have a very very nice office in my home. So I'm working primarily out of that, but I use a virtual office space again, something um, that wasn't as available back in the day as it is now. I, use, I have a office space arrangement with a company called Regus R E G U S, mm-hmm. and they're they're international and it's really, it's really a great opportunity. So what it amounts to is I have a membership there and I'm able to go into the office and, uh, and book office time under that fee arrangement for five days in the month. So I batch up all my, um, all my meetings with clients on those five days and it just works out really well that way. And what's particularly advantageous is that they have, space all as i said all over the country and literally all over the world so if i have to meet somebody in down county as we call it i can Mm -hmm. book office space there if i need to meet them up county i book office space up you know further north so it gives me the opportunity to have multiple physical locations under one virtual arrangement and how have you uh, found that to work for your clients? Have you ever had any sort of uh, pushback 
uh, on that or, you know, because I know when you talk about having your, um, your office, there was a lot because I well, it was the same thing with me. When I started my practice 12 years ago, I got an office space and uh, I didn't get a place with an elevator. Well, it, I guess it did have an elevator, but it was an old restored building that was built. It was an old hotel that was built in 1865 or something that had been restored. Mm, and, sounds lovely. Uh, well, you would think, but I think the last time that it was updated was in the 70s and that was still reflected in the building. <laughs> so it oh, wasn't okay. as lovely as one would think. Um, but that I had some people close to me point out, say to me, well, you know, what about your image? Because I expect to walk into a law office and see, you know, receptionist and see this and that. So we have in our mind this image of what a law office should look like based on, you know, television shows, whatever the legal show of the day is. And probably around that time, it was Boston legal or maybe, and before that, LA law. So we get these visions in our mind just as much as like jurors get their vision in their mind of what lawyers are supposed to look like. And, you know, so as a starting lawyer, I think that's a, that's something that a lot of attorneys do starting out. They have this kind of vision in their mind of what they're expected to do. And I know that I had people when I left and became virtual, I had, I had attorneys say to me, oh, your clients aren't going to like that. I remember one guy in particular, your clients aren't going to like that. And I, and of course his agenda was he wanted me to rent space in his building <laughs> for a very high fee. Right. Um, but I never found that to be a problem or the case. Have, uh, have you had any uh, pushback or any comments from clients or any worries that you might not be you know, really an attorney or whatever, as a result of you having this virtual kind of practice? Not at all. And and in fact, I think the pendulum has swung completely the other way. Um, And and it's almost, it almost tracks the, uh, the idea of uh, how do you dress in the office as well? I know when I first opened my practice, I wore a coat and tie every day whether I saw clients or not, because to me that conveyed the image of, of being an attorney. And then I realized, well, I'm only performing that for my, for my own benefit, because if I'm not right. having, if I, don't have, if I don't have any clients and uh, client meetings that day, and frankly, I don't accept drop-ins, um, then why am I wearing a coat and tie? Who am I wearing that for? Is it just so I'd be seen in that uh, uniform when I go out to lunch? And that has some value to it, I, I, I admit. But practicality came, took the charge, and I started wearing, becoming a little more casual. Um, but you know, if I was going to meet clients, I would put the coat and tie back on. In fact, I had mm-hmm. you know a suit and a coat and tie hanging on the back of the, the door, for just that purpose, if there was an emergency or what ha- what have you, but um, gradually I, I came to understand that the clients really didn't care. They want to know whether you can help them solve their problem, and mm-hmm. certainly the clients weren't getting dressed up to come to the lawyer's office. And so um, I, I got to be a lot more comfortable uh, not 
uh, dressing up. And by the same token, I found my clients a lot more comfortable coming to a virtual office space. It's still an office. It's still, I close the door. You know, it may not be the same. If I meet you one week to the next, it may not be the same office space itself, but it's still right. an office. And for the for the clients, they, they feel just as comfortable with that. But I will tell you, the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction that um, in my estate planning practice now, there's a fair number of clients, and I would say it's now tipped over the majority. There's a fair number of clients that I actually physically have never met. They never come right. into the office, and they prefer it that way. And um, this eye-opening revelation came to me when I was trying to do some marketing with a group um, that I uh, that I love, my flat-track roller derby girls, um, because that's another thing that I do off the side. I was, I was involved with women's flat-track roller derby, and I was oh, doing some wow. marketing with them, and I was using them as a as a test uh, a case. And I found a lot of them weren't actually taking advantage of the opportunity that was providing them. So I knew them well enough that I could actually pull them in a room and say, what's going on? How come you guys aren't aren't um, taking advantage of this great opportunity? What, what's the problem? And they said to me, well, it's, it's, the, it's the difficulty of coming to your office. What do you mean? Well, you know, I work. My husband works. My partner works. If I... If we need to come in, we've got to take time off from work. I don't, I don't have that much time or I don't get time off or what have you. Um, you don't offer after-hours uh, uh, opportunities, and frankly, we don't want to see you after hours. We're on weekends, so it's really a problem. So then I said, well, okay, well, how about, how about if I came to you? How about if I met you at your office or met you at your home? They said, uh no, because it wouldn't work in my work because, you know, that's not the kind of work that I do. And I certainly don't want you to come into the house because i got to find a babysitter or i got to clean the house or what have you. And so I said, well, how about if we did this online, virtual, using technology that's read now readily available? wasn't back in the right. day, but now it's everywhere. And I said, yeah, that's great. Can we do it via FaceTime? or Skype or just a regular phone call and you can send me the documents online and I can sign them online and send you the money online. And so and that's the way it's, um, it's evolved. And so now I have, like I said, it's almost, um, it's, it's almost more than 50%. And I think it, it's going to continue to climb as I actually market to that audience. Um, there are clients that, I physically have never shook hands with. Right, right. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think more and more we're seeing that, especially especially when you live in um, cities, you know, where there's a lot of traffic and it takes yeah. a long time to get from point A to point B. So uh, going to somebody's office isn't just an hour out of your day. It's two or three hours by the time you, you know, go have your meeting, come back that kind of thing. So you can see where more and more people are just, and, and like you said, the technology has become so much more readily available and, and people are getting more comfortable with it. You know? Yeah. I mean, when, when your kids can FaceTime the grandparents, you know, it, it, it just about anybody can take advantage of video conferencing. these Right. Days. And, right. 
Yeah. So, so tell me what uh, I want to get. I want to have a little bit of time to talk about your podcast because uh, you've been doing the podcast now for how long? Uh, almost four four years. Yeah, I'm coming up uh, in a in a couple of weeks on my 200th episode. Wow! Wow! Yeah, uh, I know that you're like yeah, you're 196 or something right now. Um, yeah. What yeah. What led you to the idea of doing a podcast? And the name of your podcast is called The Law Entrepreneur. And to tell us about the nature of what you discuss on the podcast and kind of what led you to decide to do that. Sure. I, I mean, I was a podcast junkie. I listened to a lot of podcasts and um, I was inspired. I learned, um, I was entertained. It was to me uh, just the, the perfect kind of medium where I could select what I wanted to listen to, what I wanted to learn who I wanted to learn it from, and where did I want to learn it? I could do it in the car. I could do it sitting by the pool. I could do it you know, on the treadmill. So podcasts, I, I was an early adopter of podcasts. And uh, maybe because I'm a serial uh, uh, employment jumper, <laughs> job <laughs> jumper, uh, I, I entertained the idea. I said, well, I wonder if I could do a podcast. What what would I do a podcast about? So I have been entertained by some great older attorneys here in our area who uh, love to tell stories about what it was like practicing law back in the day. And I thought, well, that'd be a cool podcast. I could do that. And um, But it quickly dawned on me that I would run out of guests pretty quickly and how much of a broad audience would that garner? And I, I said, well, I'm not sure that's the right thing. Well, right about that time, I had some uh, law school um, friends who, because they couldn't find a job in the market at the time that we graduated, were essentially forced to hang their shingle and try and go it alone. And and, and sadly, these folks were never taught in law school how to run a business. In right. fact, many of them, many of them, literally had never had a checking account or wow. written a check. And and you know, my kids are the same way. My, my, when my son got a checking account, he said, I, "I've never. I, I just you don't get use a card. No, this is a paper check. This is how you write a, a checking account." And so. Um, sadly, I, one of our uh, uh, graduates lost his license because they m made a terrible mistake with, with respect to money. And I, I always felt that that was a shortcoming of law school because there was no opportunity uh, in yeah. law school. Um, and, and even the bar associations paid little attention to um, law firm management. And so I thought, well, you know, I could do a podcast on what they didn't teach us about running a business in law school. Like, oh, wait, there's my tagline. And, right. and so that's what it is. So the law entrepreneur is built on the question, what they didn't teach us about running a law practice in law school. And so we cater to solo and small firm practitioners about you know, lessons learned, you know, advances in technology, 
opportunities making uh, becoming available. And we have three different types of guests. We have other successful solo and small firm practi- practitioners who tell us about their journey, and we all learn from that. Um, we have entrepreneurs who have a skill set or vision that lawyers would be well advised to kind of pay attention to for the growth of their own firm. And then we have what I call gadget folks, people who have a product or a service to sell, and we have those uh, folks on as well. And so that makes up the bulk of our guests. And then anybody else who I think is interesting that has some tangential relationship to uh, to the legal profession, uh, if I think they're going to be in- interesting and entertaining and informative for the audience that uh, I have, then I will invite them on the show. And if you told me four years ago that I'd still be doing this podcast, I, w- I would have expressed a lot of surprise because I thought it had maybe a six to 12 month run in it. And mm-hmm. uh, it just keeps getting more popular and, and bigger um, every, every month, every, every week, really. So I'm blessed in that regard. And uh, I love doing it. Right, right. And there's so many uh, legal podcasts now that are starting to to pop up out there every week. There's there are new ones that are coming on the scene. So I think that's a good indicator that you have a lot of people who are interested in these types of topics. Um, we can't get enough support well, think, as attorneys. I, yeah, and I and I think one of the things that that illustrates it just hammers home the point that the legal community needs this type of education, this type of um, information. They're not getting it from their law schools. They're not getting it from their bar associations. They're not getting it from private industry, at least not enough and not on a mass, not on a mass level. There are some law schools that have absolutely um, incorporated uh, law firm management into their curriculum, but it's really like a one credit course or maybe a two semester course for two credits each. I, if I were running the law schools today, I would have a separate track just on law firm management because I completely agree. You want to be able to you want to be able to prepare your students, and if they decide that's the way they want to go, that that they're going to be successful and reflect well upon your law school. And the same way with bar associations. Bar associations, I think, are so often focused on the technical aspects of the practice areas, how to, how to stay abreast of family law, what to know about immigration law, what's the latest changes in criminal law. But they forget that 50% of, of the bar association members are small, and I don't know if that's an accurate number. I'm just making that up. But just anecdotally, disclaimer, that number let's might be completely wrong, but let's just say a lot of, uh, uh, of their members are, are, are solo and small firm practitioners, and they would like to know how to be better at running their office. And then right. you have some commercial uh, ventures, people who have coaching sessions and uh, workshops and, and, and that like, so so you can take advantage of those for a price then you got to find the right one and i i say i have a lot of law firm development coaches on the program 
there mm-hmm. there are a great many of of them out there. You just got to find the the one that works with you uh, in the way that you find beneficial. Um, but even then, it's it's not as comprehensive as it could be. So I think the fact that there's so many legal podcasts popping up, and the, and in by extension, the fact that we've been successful over the course of four years just illustrates how important the need is. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, what is it like? If, if you want to work in a in big law, it's the top 5% of the class in the top from the top tier law schools. Well, that leaves, an, you know, 95% of the other lawyers, <laughs> yeah. you know, looking for other alternatives for their career. And so many of us start our own, you know, businesses and our own practices. And as you and I learned, even if you have business skills, it doesn't necessarily translate into, you know, be running sure. a law firm, right? There's a lot of yeah. aspects no. of running a law firm that are different from some other type of businesses. And so I think that that, you know, that is definitely needed. Um, you know, I, 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 with regard to podcasting, I, you know, I encourage attorneys to, to try out podcasting. And I think we could even use more podcasts um, because one of the things that, you know, attorneys that I, that are my clients, you know, ask was what kind of podcast would I do? Who wants to hear about, you know, this or that. But I think there will be more and more of a need for podcasts about particular areas of practice as well as time goes along. what do you think about that with encouraging other attorneys to have podcasts? Well, I think um, that is, podcasting is kind of where blogging was a decade ago. And, you know, when blogging first came on the scene, there were so many people said, well, geez, what would I, what would I write about? Who'd be interested in what I have to say? And and a lot of a lot of attorneys jumped into that space. And my good friend Ernie Svensson was one of the first, Ernie the attorney, and mm-hmm. he's made an entire career, an entire living out of being a blogger and now a podcaster and 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 and, and coach. But um, you know, some people did it better than others, and those blogs flourished. Some people didn't have, frankly, a lot to say, and their blogs languished. So I think that's where we are with podcasting. There's mm-hmm. an infinite number of subject areas that can be addressed, and even in the, the 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 legal space, I think there's all kinds of subject areas. You just have to figure out what works best for you and what's the best story you can tell, and what's the what's the best way to go about it um is it the interview uh model where like we're doing today where one is interviewing somebody else on their podcast um is it the dialogue model such as what ernie does on his podcast was largely just him speaking on a subject that that he feels is important and he gets across to his audience um or is it some hybrid um i think the next the next real uh, frontier for that is YouTube, and 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 oh yeah, we've already we've already broke or, or or gotten across that threshold. YouTube is an explosive growth area just in general, 
but I don't see a lot of attorneys yet starting their own YouTube channel. So I think the crossover from podcast to a dedicated YouTube channel where I can literally have a hosted TV show regarding whatever subject I want to deal with in the legal space, I think that's we're going to see a lot of growth there as well. Yeah, yeah. I think you have a lot of, uh, you know, I think podcasting may be um, easier for people because they're not having the video aspect of it. You know, there's so many people that are so worried about the way that they look, but then, you know, people also don't like hearing their voices recorded. So, <laughs> you know, those are all internal right. issues that you have to get over. It's the, it's the visibility factor, like you said, with blogging, people saying, well, who wants to hear what I have to say? You have to really, um, if you're using tools like blogging and podcasting and videos um, to market your firm, you know, you have to kind of get over that uh, fear of being visible to a wider audience and potentially, you know, being judged or criticized for what it is that you, you know, the way that you're doing it, right? And I've, I have yeah, found I it to be a very friendly kind of environment. Um, maybe I'm not paying close enough attention to <laughs> detractors if I have any, but um, what have you found for, for the, your experience in podcasting? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm always stunned about the positive response that people have shared with me. I mean, I know my friends and family like the podcast, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> always really surprised and and pleasantly so about the positive feedback that I get and when I get recognized it's it's even you know more humbling I I was at um I was at uh I think it was the Avo conference uh-huh. in Las Vegas a couple of years ago and I'm just walking down the vendor um display area and this woman jumped out from behind the uh, counter and said, "You're the law entrepreneur." I went, "Why? Why? Yes, I am." <laughs> well, I love your show. She goes, "And you look just like the caricature." My logo has a has a caricature. Right. I thought, right. No, actually, the caricature looks just like me. But okay, <laughs> I came first. <laughs> but, uh, but that was just. I'm just shocked about that. And I was playing golf at, uh, at down in, uh, at the beach and um, they took my name down because I entered in a tournament. And when I went to register or went to uh, check in with the pro when the, the tournament started, I said, Hey, my sister is helping out here. And she saw the roster and she saw your name. And she wanted to know, is that the Neil Tyra who is the law entrepreneur? And of course, the golf pro had no idea what the hell she was talking about. And I said, "Well, yep, that that's me." Man, can I? Could, she would so like to meet you. I went, oh, "You're kidding me!" Oh <laughs> so, wow! Yeah. So that happened. So that kind of thing, I think, is is very humbling, and I'm I'm happy about that. But yeah, I, for me, it's a door opener. I certainly have used it not so much to market my own firm, although there is some crossover, but not really as much. It it has given me the opportunity to really network and, and connect with some really important movers and shakers. And I will just tease your audience a little bit. You may, by the time this airs, it may already be over, but uh, my 200th episode 
uh, I have a an absolute killer, absolute killer guest that I can't wait to share with everybody. Oh wow! Um, so yeah, so that's gonna um, that's gonna be in uh, on February tenth. Oh, we so, will look forward to that. Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, so it's it's given me the opportunity here to reach out to people I would never think to talk to, you know, uh, one of my favorite episodes, I, I repeated a, a couple of times. I, I interviewed, um, David Burkus, who wrote a book called friend of a friend about the science behind networking. And I would seen him on a online thing and I just decided to take the leap and reach out to him and see if he might be interested in appearing on my podcast. And lo and behold, he couldn't have been happier or quicker to respond. And it was a phenomenal interview. Learned so much from reading his book and so much from talking to him. And he's a big time author and professor at university of uh, oral Roberts university. But I never would have just you know, reached out to somebody like that. So podcasting, uh, blogging, uh, YouTube video channel hosting those those kinds of platforms do give you the the opportunity to reach out and connect with some people that you might not otherwise do so and therefore expand your network and hopefully as a result expand the opportunities that flow from it. Right, right. Well, it's funny you said that because my next question for you was your most interesting conversation you've had. Um, so I appreciate that you should have you. Is there something else that comes to mind when I ask you that question? The most what's the most interesting uh, conversation that you've had? There's there's dozens of them, <laughs> <laughs> really, that have just stopped me cold um, in terms of how informative and how useful they have been. Um, you know, people like Mike Mogul who is the CEO of Crisp Video, mm -hmm. um, was really uh, just b blew, blew me away and, and just really an interesting conversation. His company specializes in doing brand videos for law firms. And it's right. one of the fastest growing, biggest companies in Atlanta, Georgia. And they did my brand video. So if you go to my, my website for my law firm, um, you'll see the brand video that they did for me. I, I, I saw um, it. It was great. It was a great video. Yeah. So they're 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 great. Um, I, I can't say enough about Ernie Svensson, mm -hmm. uh, Ernie the attorney. Um, another uh, guy who have, I've spent a lot of time talking with is Victor Medina. Victor Medina is an estate planning attorney in New Jersey, but he also runs a conference called MacTrack Legal. And I never... I'm never at a loss of words listen, talking with um, you know, Victor because he's just so brilliant and so personable. And, you know, there's, I could go on and on and on. <laughs> just, right. It's a very it's enriching, so it's a very enriching experience. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so what kind hard, of, hard for me to pick out you know, one over the other. What kind of, uh, you know, you started out with this podcast uh, and you talk about how, you know, after 10 years of being a lawyer and having your own practice that you, you, you kind of started this podcast wanting to talk to people about how they're running their 
law businesses to see what you could learn from it for your own yeah. law business. Sure. What kinds of things stand out in your mind that you've learned through doing this podcast that you've then implemented in how you run your practice today? Well, let's let's be clear and, and real open about this. Um, I enjoy the podcast as much for the fact that I get a ton of free advice <laughs> as a result. I, I get to talk to coaches that I would otherwise have to pay hundreds and thousands of dollars to. I get to talk to experts whose services cost a lot of money. I get a lot of free advice and I'm I'm very clear that I'm lucky in that respect. So I'm appreciative mm -hmm. and 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 very grateful for that. And and yes, my practice has been totally reshaped by what I've learned interviewing people on my podcast. I think one of the biggest things that I learned um is the need to outsource as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And you know, I had this conversation with um one of my guests um a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, who we talked about the, the challenge that attorneys have that they think before they can um, outsource work that they have to build up a bank account to make that affordable. And they never get to that point. So all they do is they get stressed and they get overworked and overwhelmed. And his point of view is, you know, the sooner you can outsource um, you know, some work, uh, whether it be you know, uh, administrative work or paralegal work or um, or actual legal work, uh, that you, you free yourself up as the owner to uh, use that time to get more business. And right. so, you know, so uh, that's really influenced my uh, organization of my law firm. Um, the, the concept of, so that's one outsourcing mm -hmm. another, uh, and just by the way, that was Brett Tremblay on episode 195. Uh, he owns a company, he's a very successful attorney down there in Florida down with you. Um, but also owns a company, uh, uh, for offshore or foreign based, um, uh, virtual assistants. So that's something you may want to take advantage of. The other mm -hmm. the second thing I think that I've learned and it's influenced how I run my practice is, uh, and again, this came natural to me because I'm a techie by nature, but um, the idea of being able to do everything paperless and electronically. And right. even though I profess to be a paperless office and I largely was, I was 95, 98% paperless the the point was driven home by a client of mine who owned a um a, a tech company and it hired me to to do their estate plan and uh when it was, came time to send them the retainer agreement i you know drafted the retainer agreement and i sent it to him as an attachment in the email and he chastised me and said wait wait the law entrepreneur doesn't have electronic document signing and I went, uh, well, it's something I've been meaning to get around to. <laughs> so uh, with that, I had to, I had to, you know, stop and, and implement uh, electronic, uh, you know, contract signing. And that right. led to electronic um, PDF 
uh, uh, development. And um, so now I do literally an electronic payment uh, system. Okay. Um, I use LawPay just to plug that company. Uh, not mm-hmm. that I get anything for doing so, but I love LawPay. Um, you know, so I, I've learned from my guests the simplicity and the importance of doing those things. And so uh, that's that's greatly shaped my my practice. Right, right. I uh, what just before we wrap up here, can you give me yeah. uh some what advice would you have you know out of all these years of doing this and all that you've learned what what is like a key piece of advice you would have for uh new lawyers coming out and starting their own practice in particular you know my audience are women lawyers um who start their own law firms and uh, we haven't really touched on on the differences there but what what advice would you have for them well um yeah, I'm glad we have a couple of minutes to spend on that subject because, uh, again, you know, you and your audience don't need me to tell you the challenges that women have in the practice of law. And if you if you don't believe that there are challenges, just open your eyes a little bit more because it it, it is particularly difficult on women. Um, I've seen that with my own eyes in terms of how they're treated in the workplace, you know, opportunities that that are made available to them, how they're paid in the workplace. So all of that is uh, very real. We, we, intuitively, we know that. And a lot of us men just want to hide our heads in the sand and not believe that to be the case. But, um, you you know, I talk with a lot of, of attorneys, female attorneys, who have who have told me that they came to where they are today because they didn't have the opportunities that opportunities weren't made available to them in big law or the corporate practice or public um, sector practice that they were working in. And so, what I would say in terms of advice is to for women who are considering a solo practice or small firm is don't don't settle for that. Don't accept that. Fight hard against that because um, in many ways you're more suited, frankly, to the practice of law um, than your male counterparts are. And you can design your practice the way that it works for you. If you want to have your children in the office, okay, you can do that. If you want to have your dog in the office, you can do that. You know, if you want to take a break uh, to, to to in the middle of the day because the your kids dictate time that you need to be away from the office. Don't let a firm tell you that that's not possible because it is absolutely is possible. You can create it for yourself if you have to. But um, you know, it it uh, I, the the people who are successful, the female attorneys who are su- successful in the solo um, world. They intuitively get that, or explicitly, or they explicitly um, design their practice around it. And you know, I think if you're sitting on the sidelines and you're wondering if you, you know, can I do this, or is it feasible? I would say absolutely. You know, design what you desire and what works for you, because 
Um, you can have a successful, very successful practice that way. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with you. And I think that one of the one of my core messages to women attorneys who are who are solos, and a lot of them are solos. A lot of them are choosing to start their own practices. I mean, there are many reasons. Some of it is because they can't find what they're looking for in a in a law firm environment that somebody else owns. But so many times I hear it's because I need the flexibility because of the way my family set up, you know, the way my life is set up. Yeah. I want that flexibility. But one of my messages is, is that you can have that and you can have the monetary success that comes along with it. Because I think that's so many women think, well, I'm going to have, I'm going to have this, but it, but I'm not going to be able to make the kind of money that men might be able to make in their, if they had started a law practice. And so uh, that uh, we're, I think the tool, a lot of the tools, what you've talked about, what you talk about on your podcast with all the different technology and outsourcing services available to us now, it has really made, there's really a tremendous opportunity for women to have very successful practices and make money, make, make real money, not just replace a job, but actually have a business that's profitable um, by using some of these resources. And it, so it really levels the playing field a lot. Absolutely. And I will, I, and I also, you know, point out that we've, I've had a number of guests who, um, who took a break from the practice of law. In fact, you had a guest on who did the same thing, took a, mm-hmm. took, took a break from the practice of law and um, they worried, would I, would I be able to restart my career after two or three years of raising a family or however long they chose and um, decided that the only way to make that happen was to, to go into solo practice. Um, that, that shouldn't be something that should deter you. If you, if you feel that that's what's right for you and right for your family, um, you can absolutely you can absolutely be successful as a solo practitioner and, and grow that solo firm and restart your legal career. I've had dozens of guests that have done that, and mm-hmm. that's just, just indicative of the opportunities that are available. You, you just have to insist that you're going to make that happen. Right, right. It's an exciting time, isn't it, Neil? It's an exciting time with so. all of our technology and everything. I think so, absolutely. Well, we are, you and I have had a nice long chat. I could, I could chat with you probably for another hour, but we probably need to wrap this up. So why don't you tell us where we can find out more information about you and the law entrepreneur uh, so people can find you? Great. So, uh, you know, my, my law practice is at tyralawfirm.com, T-Y-R-A law firm, all one word, tyralawfirm.com. Um, and then the... Uh, podcast. Uh, our podcast webpage is at thelawentrepreneur.com. So www.thelawentrepreneur.com. And you can find me everywhere on social media. Just search Neil Tyra, N-E-I-L-T-Y-R-A, one word. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and you can find me on uh, at the Law Entrepreneur as Law Entrepreneur uh, on, on Facebook and Twitter. And would love to connect in any way shape or form. 
That's terrific. Thanks so much, Neil. I really appreciate it. And it's been, it's been such a pleasure. Terrific. I mean, I was happy to be here and much success to you on the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. Wow. I, Thank you. Uh, I have it in my rotation and will continue to listen to you for quite some time now. Oh, great. Thank you so much. The Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast is sponsored by Wealthy Woman Lawyer, LLC. We help women law firm owners build wealth-generating law firms without overwork and overwhelm so they can reclaim their time and create the lives of their dreams. If you are ready to create more of what you truly desire in your business and your life, then you'll want to sign up for our free training, How to Transform Your Solo Practice into a Seven-Figure Firm with Total Ease. Register at WealthyWomanLawyer.com slash webinar.